You're listening to The Fifth Estate from the Wheeler Centre. This week's episode is called Democracy in Action, and not surprisingly, we're talking democracy, in particular, what a healthy democracy looks like today. When it comes to the people having their say, what's the meaning of populism? And how about when everyday people reject the political classes? Sally Warhaft is our host, and she's joined by guests Greg Sheridan and Gareth Evans. Gareth Evans, of course, was a cabinet minister in the Hawke and Keating governments for 13 years and an MP for over two decades. Uh, Among his portfolios, he was the Foreign Affairs Minister, the Attorney General, and he's uh, most recently been the Chancellor and Honorary Professorial Fellow of the ANU since 2010. Our second guest is not John Hewson, who uh, unfortunately uh, for him, uh, he had to uh, bow out of this event uh, yesterday and he sends his apologies. Um, Very fortunately for us, we have Greg Sheridan here. And Greg, thank you especially for for coming to do this tonight at short notice. Greg is the foreign editor at The Australian uh, and one of the most influential uh, journalists in the nation, the author of numerous books, and this year got a uh, very well-deserved gong and order of Australia for his services to thinking. Please give a very warm welcome to them both. (laughs) That's pretty pretty impressive. Well, um, we have these serious heavy hitters here because um, I, for one, am rather disturbed about the picture of the world at the moment. Um, I I feel like I've not known a period of uncertainty as I'm feeling it at the moment in my lifetime, actually. And uh, there are so many questions in so many places about... Uh, what democracy is and how it should function and so on. So I want to start tonight uh, by uh, going straight to the United States and uh, Donald Trump. Uh, Because I honestly feel like if Donald Trump were to win the presidency, and I think people are only just starting to take this seriously, uh, I can't imagine a more disruptive event, actually, uh, really that I could think of. And I don't know if anybody saw the editorial in the Washington Post four days ago. Absolutely remarkable. So I'd like to hear from both of you, and I'll start with you, Gareth, about um, what you think is going on with Donald Trump in America and what it would mean if he were to become president. Well, I don't think Donald Trump's going to be winning any awards for thinking uh, anytime soon. Uh, if, you want, if you want a sexist, racist, ignoramus, Donald Trump's your man. Uh, if you want someone who's going to career around the world like a crazed adolescent, breaking apart all the structures and all the institutions which are giving the world such little stability as it now has, Donald Trump is your man. I mean, 
He does reflect something that's obviously going on, not only in the United States, but in Western Europe, and to a little extent, at least uh, here in Australia and the other Western democracies. And that is uh, economic pressures giving rise to a sense of alienation, people being left behind, security fears uh, giving them the urge to run to someone who sounds strong enough, whatever the absence of any specific policies, to deal with those fears, and someone who's also appealing to cultural anxiety, not just that cultural anxiety which expresses itself as xenophobic and anti-immigrant because it's economically and because it's security driven, but also the cultural anxiety that comes from people just not feeling as comfortable as we in the inner Melbourne elites do with diversity and with cosmopolitanism and with internationalism and with difference. And he's obviously capturing that set of uh, streams that are out there and doing so because the major parties, which has been the story again elsewhere, we'll no doubt come back to, have just been not meeting those concerns in a way that electorates, voters, or significant numbers of them anyway, have been listening to. So God knows whether he will actually succeed. It can't be assumed that he won't. It absolutely cannot be assumed. The media is going to go on feeding this bubble with due respect to your lot, Greg, because that's what the media does. And there are these other factors at work, and unless you know, Hillary can lift her game and start connecting in a way that she manifestly hasn't been able to do so, then uh, we could be in for uh, quite a lot of strife, in which case I guess there'll be no alternative but to follow the old Bertolt Brecht injunction and dissolve the electorate and get ourselves another one. Because, uh, <laughs> that'll be the only option that's left. <laughs> yeah. Greg. Well, Sally, it's, uh, thanks so much. It's great to be with you. And it's a real honour to share a platform with Gareth. You know, just before I answer your question, Gareth obviously was one of the great foreign ministers Australia has had. And I first came to prominence really writing about Gareth. So, mm. Gareth, as well as all the other things you're going to have to answer to your maker for, the Sheridan career, for good and for ill, it's all your fault. But um, See what you did, Gareth. See what you did. But it gave you a lot of good lines. It did, it did. <laughs> the law of unintended consequences. <laughs> I would agree with everything Gareth said about Trump, and I'd just make two extra points. One of the big structural challenges to democracy all over the world today is the quite extraordinary rise of very nasty hyper-nationalism everywhere. And, uh, you know, one of the great disappointments of Marxism in the... 19th and 20th centuries was the way nationalism trumped um, worker solidarity and proletarian sentiment. And nations went to war with each other with the full support of their working classes who didn't have a revolution against the bosses and didn't join in fraternal relations with working classes overseas. They fought for their nations. And everywhere in the world, nationalism is trumping liberalism, it's trumping democracy, it's trumping economic reform, it's trumping everything. So Trump channels nationalism uh, very effectively, very crudely. No one could like Trump less than I do. And I don't know a single Republican. I, you know, I probably would have voted for the Republican candidate in all the elections of my adulthood if I'd been American. I certainly wouldn't vote for Trump under any circumstances. I'd be ashamed to know someone who voted for Trump. The second point I'd make about Trump is um, Hillary is a very effective conventional politician. 
She's like the German national team in a soccer World Cup. She's well drilled, she's proficient, everything which has brought success in the past, she has mastered, she's got the playbook, she's bought the best coach to the best training facilities. Trump is like the Brazilian national team on methamphetamine overdose. <laughs> he, it's completely insane and you expect it to crack up at any minute, but it keeps just from a technical point of view, throwing moves on you, which you, you can't believe and you can't cope with. Mm. I mean, last week I watched every minute of this dreary, terrible Republican convention and I thought Trump's in quite a lot of trouble here because he can't unite his own party. But it seems that the fact that even the Republicans don't like him as somehow or other works with the electorate because he got a great bounce out of the convention and in quite a number of the polls he's ahead now. Those polls don't mean very much. You, you generally get a bounce out of the convention and it's probably temporary and I still think Hillary will win. But uh, although I, I would have voted for Brexit if I'd been a Brit, it's one of the interesting things of Brexit in this connection is that Brexit passed in the face of bipartisan opposition from the main parties in Britain, both the Conservative Party and the Labor Party and the Liberal Democrats for that matter, all opposed Brexit and the electorate said, you're all against it, good, we're voting in favour of it. Now, Trump is somehow or other benefiting above all else from his outsider status. And one of the elements of this, and I'll, I'll finish on this point, is that he has invented a new form of political discourse. You know, Obama had soaring rhetoric and everything and I'm of a generation and Gareth Preven, perhaps even more so, which responds to soaring rhetoric. Trump speaks a different idiom in politics. He speaks the idiom of reality TV. That's not just a cheap insult. This is a very technical point I'm making, really. He has mastered a method of communication which is now very prevalent, especially in the United States, but I suspect even in Australia, and he speaks in the language of people who watch World Championship Wrestling, NASCAR Racing, but also Oprah Winfrey and Ellen DeGeneres and The Apprentice and all of that. And these folks haven't read their Bible. The Martin Luther King-style rhetoric doesn't get, get anywhere with them. He speaks the language they can understand. It's rather horrible, uh, mm. but there it is. And with those gloomy thoughts, I am very pessimistic. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Gareth, uh, Greg has touched on the, this, the really interesting and curious uh, parallels about what's gone on with Brexit and what's going on in America. What are your thoughts on on those two um, places, these anti yeah. yeah, there's, there's a similar populist phenomenon at work and a similar resistance to experts, a similar resistance to um, the cooperative positions of the major parties, exactly as Greg describes. You can't just attribute the Brexit stuff to sort of mindless xenophobia, anti-immigrant stuff. I mean, there's a genuine cultural nationalism thing at work there, you know, that sense of British history and pride. There's also a certain understandable distaste. I lived in Brussels for nine years. I understand about the EU and how people can you know, be resistant to the blandishments of that regulatory empire. There was that at work. There was also obviously the, uh, you know, the security and the economic dimensions mixed up with the cultural dimension all running together. But it's part of this larger phenomenon that we do, I think, have to worry about. 
that um, not only the problems of democracy generally and illiberal democracy, but also the problems of dysfunctional democracy, where the traditional reliance on the guidance of the major parties, each position to the right of centre or the left of centre, but between them consolidating the vast bulk of community opinion and neither of them diverting too markedly from a rational common position, even though there's obvious differentiation between them. And without, you know, sort of populist surges and winds coming across the top, or without being undermined by miscellaneous single-issue themes and parties and interests, that old model is, is, is fast evaporating. And uh, we saw the results of it um, in Brexit. We may be seeing something like this happen in the United States, God help us. And we're seeing a little bit of it um, here in Australia, this dysfunctionality you know, problem with our democracy based on the moving away of support from the major parties, the moving away of confidence that the major parties, either individually or between them, can deliver all the right policy solutions, and a reliance on other forms of emotion and ideological attachment to, you know, pursue other goals that are not necessarily at all in the best interests of the country at large. Um, before I move on, I just want to ask you one little insider question as a former foreign minister. How would the government be preparing for a possible Trump victory? <laughs> sort of hiding under the table, I think, is the only possible <laughs> option. No, no, this government puts everything on the table. I mean, their hope will be that the deadlocks inherent in the American political system and the impossibility of doing anything in the context of Congress sort of legislatively will stop one whole lot of sort of madness of that kind. And they will also be hoping that there'll be sufficient, you know, sort of adult opinion around in the State Department and the other, you know, departments of state not completely turned over at the top, of course, as they can be, and they'll hope that there's a bit of, uh, you know, sort of adult advice around in the NSC and the White House, but it'll be more in hope than in expectation. There really will be, and I know there is, there's real concern at the moment, because this is not out of any playbook that anyone has ever dealt with before. This is not your red book and your blue book and this set and that set of different possibilities. This is just a loose cannon, a crazy buffoon cannon, versus, you know, steady, boring, you know, traditional politics. And um, this, is, this is the problem that every country in the world is going to have in dealing with the United States. Except Russia. Uh, Except Russia will be very happy indeed, and, uh, and we're seeing that. Yeah. Well, I think Russia, China and North Korea would all be happy to see Trump win because it means a decline in US influence. But I actually think, Sally, you've asked a really very profound question, and I hope the best policy minds in Canberra are working on this, because uh, if Trump wins or if Trump loses, we're still going to have to deal with the Trump phenomenon. I mean, will we get our grandfather's Republican Party back, that party which was in favour of free trade, in favour of sensible immigration, in favour of strong defence, forward-leaning American leadership in the world. That's if he loses, that's a question. If he wins, that's a huge challenge for us. There's, I want to offer a small consolation and a big warning. The small consolation is in the person of Jesse Ventura. Many of you have never heard of Jesse Ventura. Jesse Ventura was a professional wrestler, a professional wrestler who became governor of, um, was it Minnesota or Wisconsin? I can't recall. Minnesota. Minnesota. Before he became governor, Jesse Ventura was a nut. 
As soon as he ceased being governor, he resumed that identity in the fullest uh, way possible. But in the four years that he was a governor, he behaved like a reasonably sensible human being. And obviously surrounded by advisers, limited by the state legislature. Now, you hope that that's the model for Trump. But even if we get that relatively benign scenario with Trump, if he appoints someone sensible as Secretary of State and so forth, the bureaucracy, the Congress, he can't order the American forces to engage in torture because he'll get impeached by the Congress. And like most populists who get elected, he'll find he can't implement his crazier ideas and he'll quietly retreat from them. But nonetheless, there are huge policy challenges for Australia. First of all, I don't think we'll have a massive bilateral problem because we don't consume American money or consume American security. We're not we don't have a big trade surplus with America or anything like that. So probably the bilateral relationship would struggle along okay. But uh, what about America's leadership in Asia and the Pacific? So we have huge tasks in our own interest to perform. One is to convince the Trump administration to behave sensibly. And the other is to convince all of our friends and allies and interlocutors in Asia to give the Trump administration the benefit of the doubt as far as we can because uh, there is huge fear and worry in Asia about what a Trump administration will mean. Will he actually follow through on his threat to basically ditch the alliance structures, tell Japan and South Korea to get their own nuclear weapons, stop the commitment to American forward deployments in the region and so on? And we have to be ourselves part of America's irreducible minimum so they don't abandon their alliance with us and we have to be more energetic and active than we've ever been in mediating their position in Asia. And all of the, and I'll finish on this point, all of the good uh, principled Republicans who've said they'll never have anything to do with Trump probably need to go back on those words and work in a Trump administration in the very unfortunate event that he gets elected because I would then want the likes of Mike Green and Bob Zellick and so forth to people that administration and keep it as sensible as possible. But of course, much better if he doesn't get elected. In 1989, Francis Fukuyama wrote his famous uh, essay on the end of history, which is, to my mind, I think the Communist Manifesto is looking like it's got longer legs. Uh, but, uh, you know, in that he argued that, that uh, liberal democracy was the pinnacle of of human uh, uh, politics and uh, that we could get no better. How is that thesis looking right now, Gareth? Well, it's not looking too flash at all. I mean, you, for a start, you've got the uh, countries like China, which people had been hoping by now would be moving towards, at least at the grassroots level up, some form of democratisation. That's now going in the opposite direction under Xi Jinping. And as a role model for the rest of the world, it's demonstrated it can produce supreme economic results while operating in a totally authoritarian mode. So it's not good for China and it's not good for the rest of the world either. Um, secondly, you've got the, the facade democracies, the, the Russias, the Cambodias, countries like this, uh, which are just you know, operating with complete distaste for traditional liberal democratic norms. 
you've got the emergence of the kind of rush-dug democracies that I think we're beginning to see unhappily in Turkey. I mean, unquestionably elected by proper democratic mandate, but using the authority of that mandate now to move in an extremely authoritarian direction. You've got the problem of the illiberal democracies, the Orbans in Hungary, the Kaczynskis in Poland, um, the movements that are becoming evident with people coming closer to power, with Le Pen in France, in Sweden, uh, and the Netherlands, uh, and also the, the populist trend that we've been seeing uh, with the UKIP party in the UK, partly manifesting itself in the Brexit result, the populist trend and so on, um, illiberal trend um, in the United States with the Trump phenomenon. So you've got all those things at work, and then you've got what I describe as a separate problem, really a dysfunctional uh, democracy which is you know, possibly where Australia is moving to at the moment. There's no real sign of illiberalism in Australia on any kind of grand scale. I mean, Hanson's one demonstration of an illiberal stream, which we hope won't go much further. But what we are finding within our democratic system is, as I said before, a move away from that confident reliance on representation through the big block traditional parties representing broadly mainstream views, left of centre, right of centre. We're moving away you know, to a rather obvious dissatisfaction with the capacity of both parties to meet the concerns that real people out there have that globalisation, digitalisation and all its implications for them economically, they're being left behind. They're not encouraged by, well, we can talk more about this later, they're not encouraged by what they're hearing about exciting and innovative times because they just don't believe there's going to be jobs for them. Service economy may be, aged care may be, but who of our kids wants to be washing out our bedpans as we move into geriatric, you know, old folks' homes? I mean, you know, there's not the jobs there that people want, and there's worry about that. And they're showing that worry in the way that they're voting, and so it's very, very important for what I describe as the dysfunctional trend of democracy, that if we are going to be able to produce the big, correct policy solutions to the big problems of the country, the problems of an ageing population, the problems of uh, dis, uh, budget repair, uh, the problems of the smaller problems of asylum seekers, the problems of indigenous reconciliation, the problems of guaranteeing our security in a very vulnerable and difficult age, uh, the problems of delivering effective, affordable higher education. All of these things are policy problems that are not susceptible to instant coffee, single interest group solutions. They do demand a level of, of higher level policy consensus in the country and they do demand a capacity to deliver answers. And as we get the kind of election results we've seen with the kind of internal fissures in the conservative side of politics particularly, and then the reliance on this ragtail and bobtail collection in the Senate. I mean, it used to be described as the bar scene from Star Wars. Uh, but God knows how you would describe now the combination of, you know, Xenophons and Lambies and Hinches and, you know, Hansons and with a few Greens chucked in there as well. I mean, I thought I had nightmares when I was running the play some 10 years ago. But, so there's this element of dysfunctionality which has got some of the same themes feeding into it as I've characterised uh, you know, becoming evident elsewhere. So overall, when you put all that together, it's, it's not a happy story at all. I wish I was much more optimistic about it than I am. Yeah, Sally, yeah, I, I think Gareth has given us a really splendid taxonomy of our problems there. Um, I'll just add two points, really. One about 
liberal dysfunctionality and one about uh, Asia. Liberal dysfunctionality, or the dysfunctionality of liberal democracies has, as the Marxists would have said, objective and subjective circumstances. So the subjective circumstance in a country like Australia, you have to admire the strategic sagacity of the Prime Minister in calling a double dissolution. <laughs> 20 years, the major parties have carefully made sure they put Hanson last on their various preference lists, and she's often got 8% odd of the vote, but she's never got a place in the Senate. But, you know, it's good to have a guy with a mind as big as Malcolm's because he's produced a circumstance in which we're going to have three or four Hanson senators <laughs> probably for the rest of our lives. So thank goodness we've got that level of strategic planning. So that's the subjective factor. The, the objective factor about dysfunctionality in liberal democracies is two things I draw your attention to. One is the power of nope. You get rewarded now in politics by stopping things, not by achieving things. And the other is... Not David Cameron. Uh, yeah, well, he didn't, st he didn't stop it. That's the problem. Mm. The, the other thing is um, mm. there's a lot that's wrong with the mainstream media and I'd plead guilty to all offences preemptively. Uh, everything you dislike about the mainstream media, I'm happy to acknowledge. You know, where Dave... Save me a big comment here. You know, absolutely. But here's the thing. Society, if I can be... Can I use one bad word? You can use as many as you like. This is going to be a very shitty society <laughs> when there are no mainstream newspapers because the replacement of the mainstream media is not a better, more democratic discussion. It is a wildly atomised discussion full of insane conspiracy theories which are never mediated through reality. So everybody can get everything they like in the digital universe. Um, you know, as an old Irish Catholic, I can uh, easily find a website to tell me that Queen Elizabeth is the chief drugs dealer of the entire world. And then, I, I kid you not, there are such websites. And, uh, and no, the electorate never, uh, arbit never gets any arbitration of reality. So the digital universe is making it very hard for electorates to recover their sense of responsibility. But then I just want to switch completely and make a point about Asia. 25 years ago, Gareth used to make the most interesting speeches about the process of convergence in our region. And the fact that this hasn't come to pass is no criticism of Gareth. They were wonderful speeches. I wrote a couple of books based on them, really. And so I profited from this creative theory. <laughs> the idea was that our region was converging around a common set of political values. Mm. I don't think you can sustain that idea anymore. The only evidence you can really cite for it now in Asia, I think, is Indonesia. Maybe you could make half a case about Myanmar, but whereas... What about South Korea and Taiwan? Well, I think they were already there. South Korea was 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, whereas once, Asia thought that modernisation included democracy. Now, I believe in democracy in principle, as well as for utilitarian reasons, but it was commonly held throughout Asia that to become a modern nation, you had to have a sensible modern economy and you had to have a sensible modern society which included democracy. All the countries that we thought were consolidating in that direction have tended to go backwards. Thailand, hmm. the uh, semi, you know, the sort of partly democratic, partly authoritarian systems of Malaysia and Singapore have retained their character over all those decades. They have just retained their character. Um, 
The Philippines has just elected a truly appalling Filipino version of Donald Trump. 25 years ago, they had Fidel Ramos, and nobody could tell me they've, they've, they've got better, although they've still, they still have elections. But China, of course, when I was a correspondent in China in 1985, although the liberal experiment was only young, there was a sense that it had no horizon. It could go forever. Nobody argues that in China anymore. You can't go to Shanghai and tell a young Chinese technocrat, don't you wish you were as well governed as they are in Spain or Greece? Don't you wish you could produce national leaders like Donald Trump? Don't you wish you had the Australian Senate to guide your affairs? <laughs> so I think uh, throughout Asia, the prestige of democracy is not strong. India's a better story, though. India's a much better story, mm. yep. Yeah. Uh, I want to... the only story, and Indonesia. I, I want to talk about India, but I'm not. I'm going to come back to something you mentioned a moment ago, Gareth, which was about the idea of an elite consensus mm. among our political elites. And it seems to me that the only hope, really, for, for making something out of this muddle that we can all recognise as a, an effective way to be governed uh, is to somehow see bipartisanship come back into fashion. Um, we've had it in the past at crucial times in Australian history particularly. Um, and it's never been a case where we've had bipartisanship that Australia has weakened uh, or that the government or even the opposition has been weaker for that. Is it possible? Yeah, it's not impossible. Um, I don't think we should overstate any previous golden age of bipartisanship, even you know, at the height of the Hawke-Keating, Summitry and all the rest of it. Oh, the Second an World awful War. awful lot of dissent about the big policy issues and, I mean, the Mabo debate is still engraved on my heart and the opposition getting that sort of stuff through. But that said, there was a willingness to put in place the sort of institutional processes that gave you a chance of producing consensus from all the major streams around, with the Hawke Summit, I suppose, being by far the best example of that, which set the tone for that whole uh, first ministry. You've also got, I think, now a sense of crisis in both the major parties, that they are going to have to do something to break the mould and recapture the confidence of the wider community. And part of that has got to be producing answers on some of these big problems of governance that I described, budget repair and decent social and welfare policy and all the rest of it. Um, and even problems like asylum seekers, which they both wanted to tuck under the car, but they know they can't go on avoiding that. They've got to find some common ground on that. And they know that unless they do find that common ground, uh, they're going to be the prisoner of more and more developments of the kind that we've seen, with people going elsewhere around them, outside them. And I think, you know, the prospect of execution always concentrates the mind wonderfully. And I think under those circumstances, uh, Malcolm having you know, fallen so flat on his face. Um, Shorten now being very encouraged, I think, by the fact that, despite the fact that his campaign has been characterised as succeeding because it was negative, I don't think that's an accurate characterisation really at all. It largely succeeded, it certainly got negative towards the end and both of them were pretty negative, but um, it was built on a foundation of, of positives, you know, taking risks on negative gearing, taking risks on some of the budgetary positions they took. And I think both of them are seeing enough polling and 
talking to enough people to realise that what people want is a bit of statesmanship. They want a bit of, of compromise. If we can persuade the media to reward compromise in the way they re reward gotchas and bloodletting, that would be a big start uh, towards encouraging that kind of atmosphere. Uh, I think, you know, I think, I think we can just get there, but it's going to require something more from the major parties. They've got to start listening to what people are saying, what they're telling them. They've got to develop strategies that totally recognise that people are falling behind in this contemporary economy and that all the tricks of innovation and being exciting and agile are not going to solve the problem for very big chunks of the population for whom not just globalisation but digitalisation is creating really, really serious anxieties. They've got to start listening, they've got to start thinking about policy solutions which are very different from previous policies. So, I mean, maybe they've got to start talking about um, guaranteed minimum income, universal basic income, which is actually being seriously looked at in Canada, in New Zealand, in Finland, a few other places. This is stuff way beyond outside the, the policy parameters. But there's enough big problems there, and the need for a new thinking, new listening, and new, more cooperative acting is going to work, I think, to both parties' advantage. They're not going to cut themselves out of a capacity for differentiation when it comes to the next election. You can fight to your heart's content about issues of detail, about how you implement these you know, grand, necessary policy positions. And there's all sorts of ways you can always differentiate yourself. But, but the basic storyline has got to be we're in this together to big, do some big national problem solving because if you can't do it in government, Mr Turnbull, I'm not going to be able to do it in government, Bill Shorten. I'm going to need you, you're going to need me. And between us, we've got to sort of cut through this. And I, I think we'll see a bit more of that. But then I'm an incorrigible optimist about all uh -huh. things. And Sally, could I come in on that? Look, this might be the first occasion tonight, and I do this respectfully and with the deepest reluctance, where I might actually have a point of disagreement with Gareth. Now, um, I'd expect he's right and I'm wrong, but let me just, for the sake of entertainment, offer my point of disagreement. One point about the media and one point about bipartisanism. The media is guilty of all the sins it's accused of, but it's not the media alone which creates gotcha moments. Every time you think the media has done something wicked, probably 99 times out of 100, there has been a politician from the other side ringing up the journalist involved saying, oh, did you see what, uh, you know, uh, blogs from the other party said, by golly. And, and if you statesman-like or statesperson-like say, no, politician from the other side, I shall not stoop to such base uh, behaviour, the politician will immediately run off to someone else in the media and say, look, I've got a great scoop for you. Look at this gotcha moment. So it's not as if the media actually creates this entirely, uh, uh, you know, unaided by anyone else. But I have a slightly different take on bipartisanism. A lot of European um, governments became bipartisan in grand alliances between what were typically called Christian Democrats and Social Democrats, or the centre-right and the centre-left. And what happens with governments like that is that they ultimately vitiate themselves. They, they lose all life. And then the fringes become the mainstream. So in the last Austrian presidential election, the Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats came third and fourth. And the far right and the Greens came first and second in, in the other order. 
I think instead we have a different technical problem, which is that no government can implement anything of its agenda. We have a structurally populist Senate made worse by the double dissolution. And this is not, I'm not accusing Labor of this, it's not one side or the other, or, or the Liberals, they're both guilty. The worst thing I thought Tony Abbott did as opposition leader was to reject Gillard's attempted Malaysia solution, and I wrote so at the time. Hmm. And it robbed him then of any moral credibility in saying that he had a solution. My colleague Paul Kelly wrote, both parties were dedicated to a single proposition that the other party couldn't solve the, the uh, asylum seeker problem. In democracy, you're supposed to put your policy out there. If it gets majority support, you can implement it. If it's no good, the people throw you out. So the British government has a majority of 12, but given the Ulster Unionists, it probably has a majority of 30. It's declared that it's going to cut the corporate tax rate. That may be a bad policy, but if it wants to do it, it can do it. And then in another three or four years' time, there'll be an election. If people don't like it, they'll throw the Conservatives out, they'll vote Labor in. In Australia, you can't do anything. If you announce that you're going to take $1 off anybody, they will be an interest group. And if the major parties don't immediately fall in line to the interest group, the fringe dwellers will. All the, uh, all the unions which hate the Building and Construction Commission, they're all donating money to Jackie Lambie and Glenn Lazarus and everybody else. I mean, these populists will basically support any cause that will win them a few votes because they're not trying to win 50% plus one, they're only trying to win a Senate quota. And uh, I think we have a big technical problem, which we never planned to have, which is that the Senate, nobody has a mandate. You can win 100 seats in the House of Representatives and still not get your legislation through the Senate. Well, the truth of the matter is the only way you can solve the problem of the Senate is by bipartisan consensus between the major parties to deal with and override and to stare down the threat of post retribution at the next election from the minority groups. And I think there's a much greater extent to which they can unite and stare that down in the present environment than has been the case in the past, because I think there is a hunger out there for a bit of decent, good government. And I think there is a realisation that when you've got some problem like the Greens always making the best the enemy of the good and voting against the Malaysian solution or voting against the ETS, and there will be more such cases unquestionably in the coming Senate, then I think uh, the major parties, and in this instance it means essentially Bill Shorten's opposition, are just going to have to take some deep breaths and say, look, this is not our preferred way of dealing with the problem of budget repair or the problem of education funding or health funding or whatever it is, but in the interests of recognising this is a national problem which has got to be solved. If it's not solved now, we're sure as hell you know, going to be needing to solve it when we're in office and we won't be able to do it without your support. If we can approach it with that frame of mind and if the media can be just a little bit more gentle in recognising the necessity for some compromises to be made of a difficult kind and not talking about winners and losers and not rushing to find all sorts of people squealing about the degree to which they're offended by that tough decision being made, then I think we can make a little bit of process, progress. None of this should be at the expense of basic party differentiation. I don't think a grand coalition of the kind we've seen in Germany rather more successfully than you've mm. accepted elsewhere. Yep. I mean, the, the grand coalition does their exist and has worked in a pretty civilised fashion. Whether they'll get punished for it is going to be an interesting thing at the next German election. 
But um, that's not in the Australian DNA to go for that kind of formal coalition. But that cooperation in this current Senate environment is absolutely critical for good governance in this country. And if we don't see it, I mean, God help us all, Tiny Tim, because it's not going to be good. Um, let's talk about the economics of what's going on, uh, not just in Australia, but around the world with the, all the different variations of, of democracy that you talked about previously. But what does all this mean for the global economy? Do you want to have a go at that first up? Well, uh, oh, can I, can okay. I, oh, let me elaborate a little bit more. Because I'll start with saying that I think the greatest lie of this election campaign in Australia is that everything's cool. I think that, I think it, it, to borrow Game of Thrones, winter is coming. And, uh, and nobody talks honestly about that. Well, there's two, two reflections I'd offer you, Sally. The first is, you know, when the Americans went through the Great Depression, they didn't do anything more radical than elect Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Uh, now, just let's take one step back and look at Australia. So two quick comments, one on Australia, one on the global economy. We now have, we now have the longest uh, life expectancy of any human beings in the history of the human race. We have, broadly speaking, the best standard of healthcare any large community has ever enjoyed in the history of the human race. We have the highest or the second highest or the third highest per capita income in the world. Uh, we have good education, social peace, big immigration program without any big social dislocation. Now, things may get a little tricky down the track, who knows? But you'd have to say, looking at it from 10 metres, you'd have to say, no country has benefited more from globalisation, been made richer by trade, been made uh, richer by sensible economic policy, and by God, we're fed up with it and we're not going to take it anymore. And uh, really, if this drives us to breakdown, you wonder what we would look like in stress, although there is an old saying about Australia, no country handles hardship better or good fortune worse. On the global economy, the, the, big, the big challenge on the global economy, I think, is to find renewed sources of growth which don't destroy the environment and uh, to find a model where you can continue to have economic growth and continued high welfare. I mean, everybody lambastes Japan for its lost decades and so on. But Japan has nonetheless maintained an extremely high standard of living as it's gone into demographic decline and great social peace and harmony. And, and again, it lacks the dynamic which I'd like but if that were the fate of ageing, greying societies, you know, it's not, as my old Irish relatives would say, it's not the worst, you know? The big issue, I guess, is if this democratic stress that we're seeing translates itself into a much greater acceptance of closed societies, closed economies rather than open economies, because that's the, that's the economic form this sort of cultural objection is taken taking and partly driven, of course, by the economic perception of the open society not working, might have produced hundreds of millions of people moving out of poverty in Asia and Africa, but, and maybe it's done very well for a lot of people in the Western societies, but there's a lot of people who are now, you know, sort of falling behind. And if the lesson from that is the only economy we will allow to 
be governed for us is a closed economy with no movement of people, limited movements of capital, investment, uh, trade barriers right up here, protectionism, Allah, Xenophon, you know, just centre front. Then uh, we're in real economic strife in terms of the, the, the Western economies. I mean, the, the other global economies are going to keep on going gangbusters, and, but there's going to be a serious issue of, uh, of relative decline, and, and therein lies you know, a really big problem for us. The big problem about having a very open economy in this present, not only globalising, but dramatically digitalising global economy, is that, you know, people are going to fall behind in our society. That's why I emphasise so much the absolute necessity for policy elites, governments, economists to stop talking in aggregate terms about it and start being a lot more granular and focusing on who the losers actually are because there's a whole pile of losers out there and they're going to stay losers. And we've got to find ways of compensating them. We've, whether it's you know, guaranteed minimum income, dramatic schemes of that kind, or whether it's just better, more focused welfare schemes financed out of higher taxes, we've got to find a way of doing it. But that's, that's, the, that's the economic implication of the democratic uh, issue that we're, we're, we're analysing. Um, if you would like to ask a question, put your hand up and um, we'll get a, a microphone to you. Yeah. Hi. Um, firstly, thank you very much to both of you. It's been very insightful and given us a lot to think about. Um, I'm going to come back to where you started, which is North America, and specifically ask about uh, Canada. Um, you, you, talked about North you talked about authoritarianism and nationalism, yet we see in Canada a completely different regime, um, and that the people of North America seem to embrace Trudeau. So I wonder if you can explain a little, what, from your perspective, how, that, how you believe that happens, and how we can see that in other countries, if, if that's possible. Well, I think, I think Canada is a very good news story. I mean, Canadians have gone back to being Canadians after a, a decade of being something much less attractive. And they've done it because they've had a government which has been genuinely inclusive, genuinely listening, genuinely responsive to all these currents we're talking about. And not only saying, I you know, hear your pain and feel your pain, but actually putting you know, policy measures in place to respond to that and thinking big policy thoughts. We're seeing a fair bit of that in New Zealand as well, I have to say, against interest because it's a you know, non-Labor government, but a very civilised non-Labor government that is open to um, you know, addressing these issues with sophisticated you know, policy strategies that are capable of, of commanding sort of cross-party support. So, you know, the overall story is not uniformly awful. It's pretty bad across the scale in Western Europe, not looking good at all in United States, as we've seen, and a very mixed position in Asia and in Africa and Latin America, but there's a couple of standout areas that are doing well, and they're doing it because they're meeting, I think, just this prescription. Yeah, look, I wouldn't disagree with that, but let, let me be crudely partisan here. I, I actually thought Harper's government was a very good government in Canada, and, unlike Gareth here, and I thought okay. the Canadians looked sure. the reality of having a good government in the eye and decided they'd elect Justin Bieber instead. I mean, uh, and the, uh, the, the... No, no, no. The... The been downside. Doing very well. Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> the, the, doing downside, very well. the downside of the Trudeau election. But look, I agree, Canada and New Zealand are good stories on the periphery of things, but that's great. So it's not a uniformly bleak policy uh, picture. The downside is, though, even Trudeau is very interesting when you look into the technicalities of democratic politics. Trudeau 
had no achievements and not really much policy, but he was a celebrity. And the force of celebrity in Western politics is increasing. It's increasing very dramatically. Now, politicians who are celebrities because of their dynastic lineage are often not a bad compromise, you know? So Hillary came to public prominence because she's married to Bill. Gore's dad was a senator. The Bushes go back in politics a million generations and so forth. And Trudeau's dad was a famous charismatic prime minister. But even when Obama was elected, I was very worried about the role of celebrity in American politics. His most important endorser was Oprah Winfrey. They, they're very good studies which suggest she moved a million votes in the Democratic primaries. Now, Oprah Winfrey's a nice person, but I don't think she has any expertise on national American policy. So uh, Canada and New Zealand are good stories, but, you know, it's the job of the media to find the black and dark lining in every silver cloud. And... Um, <laughs> OK. Uh, somebody... Uh, Gareth and, Evan, uh, Gareth and um, Greg both spoke of the uh, Donald Trump phenomena, but I'd like to look at another phenomena in the United States, the Bernie Sanders phenomena. Uh, Bernie Sanders gave Hillary a pretty good run for her money, and he's not completely out of the picture. And Sanders talked about the billionaire class and the need for a political revolution. And so uh, I'm wondering whether what, what your, thing, uh, your thoughts are on uh, the Bernie Sanders phenomenon, both of you. Well, Bernie Sanders obviously did strike a responsive chord, uh, not only talking about those who were losing out through the globalization, digitalization sort of economic phenomenon, but also the growing inequality in the country, the way in which you know, those with the right skills were being very richly rewarded. In the case of, uh, you know, sort of managerial class, grotesquely richly rewarded. And that's in a way that's just un unprecedented in, uh, in human history. The, you know, the, the ratios of ordinary working income to top incomes are now just grotesquely disparate. And, you know, for Sanders to tap into that basic egalitarian socialist theme, if you like, uh, was a fascinating demonstration, just, you know, that how much that instinct, that egalitarian instinct, um, is still alive in the United States, despite you know, years of suppression by the, a system which has not been at all receptive to, you know, parties of the left. I mean, the trouble with Sanders is that he didn't follow any of that stuff with terribly coherent you know, economic analysis about, you know, what trade policy should actually be and how you actually live in the world that's constructed as it presently is. And, I mean, and Bernie's Democratic credentials were pretty recent. I mean, he hadn't identified with the Democratic Party until about, you know, two years before he decided to run for Democratic presidency. So he's not someone who is steeped in any of that kind of demon demonstrated institutional competence. Uh, that, that Hillary had, and that's why, I mean, she was eventually able to, to deal with him. But Hillary will fail to heed that kind of lesson, that there's a Sanders constituency out there. I mean, she'd, if she'd 
done the heroic thing and appointed Elizabeth Warren, she would have very, very specifically tapped into that constituency, but that was probably a bridge too far and probably didn't help her with the Hispanics and didn't help her with the crucial swing state Virginia that she's going to need and so on and so forth. So it was a, an entirely understandable decision. But the Bernie Sanders phenomenon has, has really been fascinating, I think, for observers of American politics, because the first time in history that you've got, you know, sort of a left voice, a recognisable Anglo-Australian left voice um, getting real traction in the American context. And it is a demonstration, again, I think, of just how far the, the ground rules have shifted, how far the inequality has has, uh, has continued and how much economic stress there is out there. Yeah, I guess it's the first time since William Jennings Bryan you've had that kind of <clears throat> left-wing candidate. But I'd say two things about Bernie Sanders. One is it shows absolutely how vulnerable Clinton was. A splendidly effective conventional politician, though she is, uh, a challenger with just a little bit more credibility or what have you, uh, might have knocked her off altogether. Having said that, I absolutely fell in love with Bernie, completely against my uh, will. You know, I was forced to write complimentary things against Bernie, uh, for Bernie. It was horrible experience. Really. This guy <laughs> took his honeymoon in the Soviet Union, and yet I was there kind of saying, go Bernie, because he was a genuine outsider. He wasn't a fake outsider like Trump. You know, he wasn't worth a billion dollars or something. And... Every time he was asked a question, he actually tried to answer the question. His policies, I think, as Gareth says, were in the end incoherent. The arithmetic doesn't add up. He was going to raise, uh, yeah. you know, expenditure and, and, and cut the deficit and everything. It didn't, it didn't all work up. His, his ideas for breaking up the big institutions of Wall Street weren't properly fleshed out. And a final thought, he produced, and I'll always bless him and thank him for this, the greatest American TV political commercial since Ronald Reagan's It's Morning in America, which was that Simon and Garfunkel <laughs> ad he had, we're all, all come to look for America, and uh, which I think he ran in the first primary, Wisconsin. If you haven't seen it, when you get home tonight, Google it, just put Bernie Sanders, Simon and Garfunkel ad, and it'll move you to tears, and they for one it. second, they it'll make it you today. a socialist. They played it today at the Democrat convention. But they did it brilliantly today. They played it today, but with a new ending. In the original commercial, yeah. <laughs> it, in the original commercial, it ends with Bernie. I mean, the guy's 74 years old. You've got to love the geezer, you know? He's wide-haired, and there's 10,000 young people all cheering, Bernie, Bernie, Bernie. And he says, I'm Bernie Sanders, I endorse this ad. The version they played at the convention today, which was brilliant, finishes with him and Hillary on the stage together, and the slogan is, stronger together, or something like that. I mean, this is very good conventional politics, very well done. I loved him today. Uh, we've got a question here and then down the front here. Uh, I'll take up. I'll take up Greg on Greg's invitation to vilify his uh, profession. Um, we've just had the longest election campaign in our history, and I don't recall um, the prospective foreign ministers being interviewed or tested even once on their um, respective competence or command of the portfolio. Um, given that popular indifference, why would Australia be taken seriously as a, a, um, a credible mediator between the, in the looming catastrophe between America and China. Well, can I just have a second on that first, Gareth? With respect, sir, that's not quite true. They did have a National Press Club debate. Uh, 
which I, I was proud of my profession because all of the questions but one were on foreign policy. And uh, now, I think Tanya Plibis, I think both Julie Bishop and Tanya Plibersek are very effective foreign policy operators. I think Julie Bishop has been a very successful foreign minister. And Tanya Plibersek has, re has recognised that the foundations of our foreign policy are bipartisan. And I don't think I wrote enough about her in the last three years, but I didn't have a single occasion to criticise her ever. And uh, I don't think she hurt the government, but as Gareth says, that shouldn't be the only measure of the success of a Prime Minister. She certainly did have some areas where she disagreed with the government, on East Timor and so on, but I think they both performed pretty well. But of course, your broader point, there's some truth in it. If it's not a train wreck, it's hard for it to get, to get much coverage. Yeah, there was that debate and I think they both did pretty well. I mean, Julie Bishop's not a very adventurous or creative foreign minister. She's a very good transactional one, a very good professional one and highly regarded around the world and certainly um, is a very respectable face to put forward. Um, Tanya Plibersek, um, I think, was quite outstanding in the way in which she got hold of the issues and approached it in a measured and balanced way, which didn't always generate or ever generate the kind of publicity that one might have hoped for the media for good sense as distinct from ratbaggery, but that's, that's life. Um, in terms of Australia's capacity to play a mediating role between US and China, I mean, I think that's a heroic aspiration and one that we ought not to, you know, sort of be thinking is the touchstone of how good we are. I mean, Australia on form has been a very effective international player, seen as creative and seen as constructive and energetic and capable of finding solutions to a whole bunch of, you know, of problems, which are not necessarily ones that are of immediate salience for us in terms of immediate security or immediate economic returns, but are very good for us reputationally. I think, I think we can cre re recreate that. I mean, I think... Um, you know, Turnbull and Bishop basically get it in terms of a liberal internationalist position, whether they'll be able to take any such position with the, you know, some of the forces they're dealing with internally is another question. Um, the Labor people, I mean, certainly approach life that way, and I think with Penny Wong now in that, um, that chair, Tanya moving across to the domestic portfolio, you've got someone with real maturity, real sophistication, real ability, and I'm frankly absolutely delighted that, um, you know, I think we can look forward to a pretty, pretty sensible foreign policy debate, and a pretty sensible defence debate also. I mean, you're not very kind to Maurice Payne, but... Um, um, I think, you know, with now Richard Miles on the, the Labor side, um, you've got people who are conscious of the issues, not minded automatically to take partisan stances, but still points of difference between us. And um, I think basically that's one reasonably healthy area of Australian politics at the moment. It's got to be the dream job, right? Who'd want to be Prime Minister if you could be Foreign Minister? Right on, right you don't, on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Not that that was ever an option for me to be anything else. <laughs> Thank you very much to the Wheeler Centre and the panel for a delightful discussion this evening. Look, I'm with you, Sally, on uh, pessimism about the world situation at present. Uh, and I refer specifically to uh, Europe, uh, the Middle East, North Africa and the uh, South China Sea. 
can I ask you to comment? None of those things uh, were uh, a result of anything that uh, Donald Trump has done. I ascribe it mainly to the things that Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton and John Kerry have done. Could you could you comment on just two: the reset with Russia and uh, Hillary's involvement in Libya, and her comment about uh, "We came, we saw, he died." Uh, and just finally, um, I, I don't recall Stephen Harper actually assaulting anyone in the Canadian Parliament that, uh, such as uh, Justin Trudeau did not that long ago. Pick your bit. I'll pick my bit on the Libya case because I think here this has been sort of overdone both ways. Libya was initially a genuine triumph for liberal internationalist forces of decency, stopping the march on Benghazi, stopping 20,000 people being killed, doing so with a non-contested Security Council resolution, not doing it as a coalition of the willing frolic, and producing a very successful result. If, if, if the world had reacted half as quickly and robustly in Rwanda or Srebrenica, we'd have 8,000 men and boys alive to this day in the Balkans, and we'd have 800,000 alive in Rwanda. The trouble is that turned to ashes very quickly in Libya because of some very poor policy decisions by the US administration, but more particularly the British and the French administrations. They were not content with treating it as a civilian protection operation. They determined they were going to make it a regime change operation. Not learning any of the lessons from Iraq in 2003 and all the other misadventures of the past. That's what happened. They went in there. Not, it was, wasn't a matter of failure of the aftermath of knocking off Gaddafi. They should never have gone in there without strong continuing Security Council support, which they just contemptuously dismissed. They said, we've got a mandate, we're going to run with it. And what's the trouble was, the failure in Libya led immediately to the paralysis in the Security Council as Syria was beginning to explode, because the countries forming the majority in the Security Council said there may be a case for sanctions, condemnation and all the rest of it against Assad in Syria, but we've watched what you've done when we give you half an inch of a mandate in Libya, you take a mile and run with it. And Syria has careered out of control ever since, and we've got a real problem in putting those pieces together. So, I mean, you're partially right that there was some element of American policy responsibility, but it was shared among the others, and in fact, America didn't take a leadership role on the Libyan case. They were very cautious about it. But, I mean, all these things, I mean, to blame the Americans, you, know, you can certainly blame the Americans for grotesque errors in Iraq in 2003, which, which created, created so much of the environment we've subsequently seen there. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not just singing an old song, it's just true. Yeah, I know, but sorry, Chilcot, 12 and a half million words or something, it sort of proves the point that we all knew anyway, didn't it? But um, I'm sorry, if, if you're going to approach it that way, there's no answer. But I, I, I couldn't possibly begin to blame Obama for any of that stuff. That's just not there in terms yeah. of the factual foundation. I, I agree with Gareth absolutely about Libya. I think I'd agree with him in every nuance about Libya. I'd just make two other points. I think the first Obama administration was much better on national security than the second. The first Obama administration had big beasts in defence and state, Robert Gates and Hillary Clinton. They were big beasts. Obama looked that in the eye. He said, I appointed a first-rate team in my first administration. By God, I'm not going to make that same mistake in my second administration. 
and he appointed absolute ciphers and lightweights. And I do think he had a very ineffective second term. But I don't want to, for a minute, end this uh, discussion by sort of re-embarking on a full theological debate about the Middle East, but I'd just offer you this perspective. Just consider in this light, and I understand there's a massive debate, I'm only going to do two sentences on it. Iraq, Syria and Libya. In Iraq, the West intervened massively, it was a disaster. In Libya, the West intervened in a limited way and it was a disaster. In Syria, the West didn't intervene at all and it was the biggest disaster of all. Now, I don't blame Obama and Clinton for getting the Middle East wrong because as far as I can see, everybody gets the Middle East wrong. Uh, there is, it's the Middle East, there is no solution. Doesn't mean you stop trying, but I just don't think we can get any partisan points out of who got the Middle East wrong. Everybody got it wrong. Short point, I mean, this stuff is very complex. Every situation is different. It's got its own dynamic, and the only sensible way of approaching it is intelligently, case by case, with an appropriate set of criteria for how you deal with it. This is what worries me about a Donald Trump, frankly, you know, because so many of these situations you can't anticipate. It's not a matter of proactive decision-making, it's reactive as situations explode around you. You've got to have the right instincts. You've got to have the right people if you're going to be able to steer a course through this and not make things much worse. So I don't accept that Obama has made anything worse than it might otherwise have been, but it's sure as hell possible that Trump might. And therein lies a big problem for all of us. Well, uh, I'm not feeling any better at all. Uh, <laughs> uh, and we do have to uh, wrap it up here. I'm sorry if you didn't get to, to ask a, a question. Uh, I'm feeling happier though. It was wonderful to see you two and uh, we do really appreciate you coming to uh, share your, your insights and intelligence uh, with us. Um, thank you. Let's give our guests a big round of applause. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Well done, Gareth. Any democratic insights of your own? Jot down your thoughts on the episode page at wheelercentre.com or start a whole new discussion at discussions.wheelercentre.com. And while you're there, look for our other talks on democracy, including Is Australian Democracy Broken? A panel including Malcolm's Turnbull and Fraser. It's a cracker. So you get the absurdity that politicians are much less accountable in the parliament than they are on your radio program or on the 7.30 report or on Q&A. We'll be back with more Fifth Estate soon from Bendigo Writers' Festival and Melbourne Writers' Festival. Check out wheelercentre.com for all that's informative, all that's good and all that's coming up next. For now, take good care. Good care.